left fielders. At LFI, you know our focus is on networking and education. Mark your calendars because we're going to have a full day of it dedicated to you, our limited partners, at the best ever conference on April 9th in Salt Lake City. Left Field Investors is opening the BEC with Passive Investing Mastery, an event focused on passive investors. This will be where insightful content meets passionate LP investors. If you enjoyed BEC last year and the meetup in left field this year, imagine them both back to back. The best ever conference isn't just any event. It's the premier conference for commercial real estate investors and operators. Your ticket to passive investing mastery includes admission to the entire best ever conference from April 9th through the 12th. Join us April 9th, where we will have a packed agenda with sessions focused on how to be a successful limited partner led by experienced LPs, top operators, and partners. Then immerse yourself in the full best ever conference where you will be surrounded by like-minded investors, operators, and industry experts for unparalleled opportunities for learning and networking. The best part, and there are so many, but the best part, you won't find a bigger discount on the regular ticket price than the one you get for being an infielder. That's more content for an exclusive lower price. Register for the event today at leftfieldinvestors.com slash BEC, and we will see you at Passive Investing Mastery presented by Left Field Investors at the BEC. Hey, left fielders, you know our partner TribeVest, the platform that makes it super easy, safe, and transparent to form a business and invest with partners. I'm in 12 tribes myself. Now, TribeVest is integrated with LFI even more. Every deal webinar has the option to join an open tribe. This means left fielders can invest at lower minimums compared to going directly with the sponsor. It's a great way to diversify and spread your risk. TribeVest handles all of the heavy lifting. All you have to do is join the open tribe. Subscribe to LFI emails and sign up for Clubhouse Access to take advantage of deal webinars and open tribes. Hi, this is Zach Haptonstall, CEO and co-founder of Rise48 Equity. At Rise48, we partner with investors like you to purchase large apartment buildings that we renovate to increase the value and create a profit margin for our investors through monthly passive cash flow distributions and profits on sale. We're a vertically integrated company specializing in the Phoenix, Arizona and Dallas, Texas markets with over 200 plus full-time W-2 employees who are focused on making sure your investment is taken care of. To learn more about Rise48 Equities Multifamily Investments, Schedule a call with me at rise48equity.com backslash invest. Now, certainly I won't debate, Jim, that people are moving to the smile states, but in the Midwest, you still have great fundamentals in terms of an educated population. You've got great employers. You've also got great other employers we can always talk about. For instance, I know being based in, in Columbus, Ohio, Jim, You've got kind of the trifecta, as we would call it, for that city. You've got a major university, the state capital, as well as other major employers. Similar attributes can be found in Minneapolis and St. Paul, for instance, which we're a big investor in. I think people are often uh, too quick to write off the Midwest as flyover country and don't often dig into the fundamentals. And that's why we've not seen the peaks and valleys that a lot of these smile states have seen. You know, they just had a lot further to fall. It doesn't necessarily mean they're bad places to live or invest, but you got to be really careful. You can overpay. Hello, left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. 
This is Peter Kim, and you are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast. I'm excited today to have Andy Sinclair with us. He is CEO and principal of Midlock Investment Partners. They're an investment firm and fund manager that invests in the Midwest, focusing primarily on multifamily industrial warehouses through JV partnerships, co-GP positions, and preferred equity. Andy, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Jim, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Well, before we jump in, because there's there's a lot just in that opening sentence that I said about what you guys do, and I'm really excited to dig into that. Can you talk about your journey? How did you get started in real estate? How did you decide you're going to be a an operator? And, and how did that whole process go about? Of course. And I will tell you, like many people, my journey wasn't necessarily a straight line. I didn't know I was going to be an operator and investor till further along in my career. So I started the business in uh, 2008, and it was pre the crash. So I remember the very end of the last bull market uh, where things were rosy, a lot of people were making easy money, uh, and then quickly it crashed. And so I started off, and I'm kind of grateful, I was the low man of the totem pole. So I was uh, what they call in the business sometimes is a real estate runner. Uh, it's called different things in different markets. But you name it, I did it. I always joke I was the guy that hung the leasing signs in the buildings that says four lease here. Um, documented files in the age before we all had Dropbox and you know digitization of files. And so you name it, I did it to help our leasing team. So I worked for a team that's now affiliated with Newmark. Um, they weren't affiliated with Newmark at the time, but now they are. I mean, from there, in the heart of the crisis, um, I went to go work for a group called Palmer Capital. So Palmer Capital, for those unfamiliar, is um, what was CBRE, which is the largest brokerage company in the world. It was CBRE's largest investment sales brokerage team globally based out of California, which was a great spot to expand my career, Jim. I was able to uh, be in the front end of doing deals between, at the time, what was 30 million and 200 million. So large investors, institutional, Wall Street, you name it. And we covered everywhere from Denver to Hawaii. Though I never, I worked on deals in Hawaii, never actually got to travel there. Uh, from there, um, I came back to Milwaukee. So I'm originally from the Midwest and came back to go work for a group called MLG Capital, which I believe the left field group has had some experience with. And at the time, MLG Capital was starting their very first fund. Um, and so I, my first group I worked for back in 2008 was MLG's affiliate, which was their brokerage department. And they said, we're just looking for people we can trust and smart people. So I ended up running MLG's private equity division for a period a little over five years. So MLG was in their verse fund, getting everything kicked off. And so I went from uh, doing the leasing sign hanging to institutional brokerage to investing and doing real estate private equity. In 2019, though, I joined several other individuals and we co-founded Midlock Investment Partners. Uh, Midlock and our affiliate have been in business, though, for 20 years. So we co-founded it with an existing real estate company um, called our affiliates called Hempel Companies. H-E-M-P-E-L. Um, and they're a traditional developer, property manager. And I was their largest investor when I was at MLG. And so we can talk more about that. But I've been at MLG now or was at MLG for a little over five years now at Midlock. And we are going on our fifth year here at Midlock. We've got a portfolio about 650 million, give or take. And about half what we do is apartments and half what we do is commercial. I'm a big believer in being diversified and not just focused on one property type, which is no longer a thing if you talk to a lot of real estate professionals. 
Call me old yeah. school. Yeah, no, that, that that's great. That's great stuff. So it seems like Midlock operates a little bit differently. And can you help me understand that you do a lot of partnering, either JV or co-GP or preferred equity. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about what well, what those terms actually mean, just so sure. we're all starting in the same spot? Let's start with that. What, what, is, what is the difference between JV, co-GP, and preferred equity positions? Yeah, let me break it down into kind of some simpler formats. And these are very common questions, Jim, that I get. And what I will say before I dive into that, what I love about what we do is there's not a lot of other providers or investors that do JV equity, preferred equity, between five and 50 million. If you talk to real estate professionals, we're very commonly uh, a thing, but it's over 50 million. And so, for instance, I'm friends with, uh, you know, various individuals that do what I do, but they only do mega buildings. Not a lot of people do small buildings. And so I'll break that down. That's what I love about our our space is there's not necessarily a lot of competitors in it. So it's a big fancy term here for JV equity, pref equity, or rescue capital at times is we are an anchor partner, anchor investor in deals. So we are a real estate operator, but we're also the anchor investor in deals. Now, what makes us different, though, from let's say you were a wealthy investor and let's say you plowed, you were the sole investor in an apartment property. Well, because we're a real estate company and a full operator, we've got contractors on staffs, property managers, leasing people, you name it. We have the ability to bring resources to our partner to help make sure the building runs, um, you know, fluidly. Now, a lot of times they have their own resources and we often do deals, what we call co-GP investments, which means we are co-general partners. Uh, but we have usually the sole voting rights and major decisions. Um, and, you know, anything you would ask your wife about in marriage is a good common example of what people would ask us about how to run a property. Give you a few easy examples on JV equity when we bring our resources to the table. Like right now, we're going through with all of our partners and working on bidding out uh, their trash contracts, or we're bringing them vendors on getting a green analysis on buildings, how we reduce our energy costs. Those are sometimes things as a small or medium-sized operator, you just don't think about or don't have the connections. And that's where Midlock comes in as their partner, true partner, to help them do that. So JV equity is a fancy term for we are the anchor investors in properties. But who better to do that than a real estate company that does money instead of a money company trying to figure out the real estate? So it's a very big distinction. Pref equity is the other term you asked about. Pref equity is a little bit of a hybrid. It's not quite an equity investment, but it's not a debt investment either. So it's a little bit in between. Usually you get a preferential dividend, just like an interest payment would to a lender. And then you get a capped interest payment, typically to about a 15% return. But in exchange, you are senior to the common equity. And so this is a big thing. This is going to be the buzzword you're going to hear moving forward, especially with what's going on as people run out of money or their loans you know, shrink in size, is you are filling this gap. I sometimes refer to it as gap equity or gap financing. And so we do both here at Midlock, and we keep all of our tools in the sandbox because you never quite know what's going to be the right tool for the right deal. So you mentioned anchor investor. Can you explain what that means? Anchor investor just means we are the majority shareholder, usually anywhere from as little as 51% up to 95% of the investment. I know you're based in Ohio. So for instance, we just closed on a deal over the summer in Cincinnati and Maramont, Ohio, for those who are familiar with Cincinnati. 
Uh, our partner and property management firm invested about half a million to a million dollars, and Midlock invested four and a half to five million dollars. Um, and so we are the anchor investor. We own about 90%, give or take, of all the equity in that deal, and then maintain all the, the, the voting rights, you know, major decisions. But, you know, putting away the legal part for a second, we also are their partner bringing resources more than just capital. You know, as mentioned, we are a real estate operator at our core that just also happens to be an investor. Just kind of view it as co-partnering in deals. And so that money that you bring, the 90 or 95% ownership that you have, is that capital that Midlock provides or is that capital that investors provide to Midlock? And then that that's, so are, are the LP investors in that amount? Well, it, the answer is both. And so we raise discretionary capital in our funds. Uh, and so investors are investing in our funds. And at times, if we deem that the deal, we should, you know, have a little bit of extra cash, you know, we raise a side piece or we call it a sidecar, which is just an individual syndication. But yes, it's discretionary capital that Midlock has pre-raised in our fund structure that we are then providing to other local or medium-sized operators. Typically, they're a property management firm or an asset management firm. And one big distinction, Jim, I'll make is while, you know, left field investor has great relationships with any small, medium-sized operators, many of those operators don't necessarily have a full-fledged operation. They usually do one to three things well. Uh, first, the first thing they usually do well is they manage buildings well. The second thing they do well is they find buildings. And the third thing is they're pretty good at running the day-to-day -day management or accounting. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean they've got full-fledged relationships with lenders, uh, investors, or even go down the line, like green financing contacts. The amount of times in a deal that we end up bringing more than one resource to the table is high. It's very rarely we don't end up bringing multiple resources to a deal because operators just don't have, it's hard for them to do everything if they haven't been in the business long enough. So why would, and, and you've kind of touched on a little bit, but but why would an operator want to work with you if you, it seems like you're going to be the majority owner, you're going to take the control, they're going to lose the control. Now, I know you, you bring some resources, but can you just talk about why they would want to bring someone like you on and, and give up control like that? Yeah, it, it's a it's a decision, right? You know, certainly, obviously, there are certain operators that don't want to ever have a partner. And I think a good example is you might say, why would someone ever want to get married, right? You know, you go from having sole voting right of what's going on in your day to day life to having a marriage or a partnership. So it's definitely a next step. Often what we find is very common is that operators, they hit a wall, both in their own resources, their own investment group. Um, and so I heard this very commonly at the left field, left field investor net, uh, networking event that was held in Columbus. I actually had a fair amount of the operators come up to me and kind of said, Hey, I've hit the wall in my own resources. So usually it's taking the next step. You know, a lot of times we are that operator's first institutional partner they take on. Um, and a lot of times we help get their systems you know, take them to the next step with not only their systems and streamline it. So it's certainly an option, Jim. People don't have to take us on. But, you know, the old adage is if you want to go far, go together. Yeah. And so what's what then that's the JV operation. What's the co GP method or how does that differ from from a joint venture? 
Yeah, they, they they work they work in unison. I mean, they're they're different parts of how the equity works, but ultimately, I think for the investing public, I think the easiest way to view them is they're they're both partnerships. Uh, you know, in in either case, Midlock is still maintaining the voting rights over the property and the day to day operations. So they uh, they work in in tandem. Okay. And then if I'm an LP investing with Midlock, I'm investing in this fund. So how does the structure, whether it's pref equity or co-GP or, or JV equity, how does that, how do each one of those affect the LP investor um, in your fund or the or even in the sidecar? Can you just talk a little bit about how the LP yeah. works and looks at it? Because, you know, we're used to funds, you know, left field investors, we understand how that operates. We're used to syndications with the JB, JP, or I'm sorry, GP. I'm getting all my uh, acronyms mixed up. But when you throw in pref equity and, and joint venture, that's not as clear from an LP perspective. Well, ultimately, all of our investors, if they're in our fund, they get a small piece pro rata um, of each deal. And so we view it a little bit of stocks and bonds, right? You know, you might in your retirement portfolio have some stocks and some bonds. So if you're in a fund with Midlock, likely we're going to have a fair amount of equity investments, right? Which is JV equity, co-GP equity, or we'll have some pref equity or some debt investments. And so we kind of break them down by different category. You know, for instance, our debt investments, we're usually looking to earn, um, you know, debt investments or pref equity between 11 to 15% all in and common equity or JV equity. We're typically looking to earn 14 to 18%. And then co-GP equity, uh, which is a different part of JV equity, we're typically looking to earn 17 to 25%. All this while maintaining leverage points between 50 and 65. You know, one of my biggest common criticisms of, you know, uh, real estate operators, no different than Midlock, is many uh, to get to those high returns, they juice the debt and then they take excess uh, risk on their assumptions. So I think it's really careful how you structure it. Ultimately, though, the LPs that we have, they get to benefit from a few ways. You know, they get to benefit by having the diverse portfolio. And then ultimately, and I know left field's got a similar attribute. You know, typically when we're investing, we get the absolute best terms. You know, so typically, um, you know, our pref rates with our operators are between nine and 10% peri pursue. And then, uh, you know, the all in promote is anywhere as little as an 80 20 to a 60 40. And I know some operators are charging pref rates as low as a six and splits as high as a 50 50. And those just aren't common. Um, but that's because we're coming in as an anchor investor. And so we're very careful, I would say, to negotiate not only what is I would call excessive fees, as well as negotiate what I would call as lack of corporate governance. And so they're going to benefit for not only benefiting from the fee part, but also the governance part. And that's before we even talk about any of the resources that come into a deal. Okay. And then you you mentioned a couple of fancy words there, Perry Pissou. Can you, uh, just so everyone's on the same page, can you explain what that means? Yeah, it's, it's 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 a great question because the first time I ever heard the term, I remember I asked someone, I'm like, what the heck is Perry Pasumi? <laughs> it's a it's an industry term for me that we are equal. We are on the same page. And the only reason I bring that up is uh is in in real estate, we like to use the same terms or was in modern English, what we call homonyms. And they're the same terms, but they mean different things. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, so one thing you hear is preferred equity, which is a type of debt-like investment. And then you hear the preferred return rate, which is the rate you negotiate with an operator 
to uh, say, at what level do we start splitting? They can mean similar things. And so I often say they're peri pursue on a preferred return rate, which means what's the rate that we're equal to before there's a split on carried interest or a promote. And so I often like to use that term just to set the stage that we're all on the same page. Okay. Yep. That, that makes sense. So you've done a good job of explaining kind of the different ways that, that you invest in the different structures. Before we move on real quick, though, the um, where does this fall on the on the SEC exemption? Is this a, a you know, 506C or, or how does that how does the SEC exemptions work in here? Uh, I'm going to make sure I'm going to disclaimer that I'm not a lawyer and we do have a full exemption here, but I'm I'm 90 percent sure it's a 506 uh, we're the we're the full accredited investors, so we don't take outside non-accredited investors. Um, I can't remember if it's 506C or 506D, but we have the full exemption. I'm, I'm missing the right letter in the alphabet to give you that normally I would have my securities lawyer give you instead. Yeah, no, no worries. I understand. I just wanted to make sure because I know there's a lot of different um, ways that these things are classified. So that that's good enough for us, I'm, I am sure. So now I want to f- uh, switch gears a little bit that we kind of understand the, the structure um, the Midwest, right? Why focus on the, the Midwest? Midwest? Right. Pardon? You mean the Midwest, correct? Oh, yes. Well, I live in Columbus. So yes, the Midwest. Um, why do you focus on those markets when um, everybody else is in the uh, smile states, heavy growth population? You know, I don't have to name the states, but everybody, everyone else is somewhere else. So why, why the Midwest? Midwest? You know, it's funny, taking a step back, I used to work with a guy that was uh, started his career um, and talked about, you know, how Wall Street worked. And um, he often would talk about he worked for Edward Jones and Edward Jones started uh, back, I believe, in St. Louis, Missouri, also in the Midwest, interestingly enough. And what they used to do is they would go to Wall Street when everything would be euphoric and they would sell their stocks and they would wait a little bit or years and there would be blood in the streets and the people from Missouri would then come in, they would buy uh, and they would wonder what their secret was other than it was just being patient when other people weren't. You know, similar to Warren Buffett, be greedy when other people are not. You know, it's interesting. I've been investing, Jim, across the country for my whole career here. I'm going on 16 years in the business. I've worked coast to coast. I and Midlock and even my predecessor at MLG, we own in some of those smile states you mentioned. I'm a homer for the Midwest for a few reasons. One is it's not always a good deal to invest in the smile states. For instance, I love Phoenix as a market. I think it's a wonderful place to live. But cap rates, and this is no bullshit, cap rates were 2% in 2021. Now, the operators would tell you they were a 5 or a 6 or make up whatever funny money monopoly math they were giving you, which was incorrect, by the way, if you actually went into the financials. And often I would pull out numbers and I would show them to operators or brokers. And I say, tell me why I should invest in Phoenix at a two cap. And they would ask me where I got the number. And I would say, it's from your package. And they would didn't even know their own math. And so I think at best, basically at the peak, the Midwest offered really good value at better pricing. It also offers stability that you just don't see in the smile states. And so the smile states are in 
for a little bit of a, a reckoning or a reversion of the mean, which is you're having big issues with insurance. You're having, you're having slowing pace of moving. I'm not saying people aren't moving there. And I'm not saying you shouldn't invest there. I just think you got to be really careful. Sometimes because it sounds sexy, that doesn't necessarily mean it's the right thing to do. You know, Midlock, ironically, we've invested in a few more smile states the past 18 months because there's been blood in the streets. Um, and so we've been buying a little bit more in some of those markets uh, because the pricing has gotten dropped in some cases 50 to 70 percent in places like Phoenix and Dallas. Turns out you can't sell at 2% cap rates forever when the 10-year treasury is at damn near 5%. Aspen Funds has been a consistent supporter of left-field investors. You may have seen Bob Frazier on an LFI webinar or at our October meetup in the left field speaking on investable megatrends for the next decade. Whether you're an accredited investor interested in mortgage note funds with a 10-year track record or other macro-driven alternative investments such as industrial, oil and gas, multifamily or retail, the Aspen Funds team is keeping track of the economic trends and co-invests on every deal right alongside you. Meanwhile, you get to do what you love and make every moment count. Download their free economic report today at aspenfunds.us slash LFI. Self-storage has been one of the fastest growing real estate sectors for four decades straight. With inflation on the rise, it may be the hedge you're looking for. Spartan Investment Group identifies low-risk, value-add investment opportunities in commercial real estate. Their private debt and equity opportunities offer stable monthly payments and predictable returns. And since they put every investment through a 700-plus point due diligence checklist, you can invest with confidence. To learn more, visit spartan-investors.com. I've heard you talk about the difference between, and you did a little bit of this, the growth markets and, and the fundamentals that, are, that exist in the Midwest. Can you talk about what those fundamentals are, what the difference is, not just population growth, but what you see in the Midwest that really makes you want to focus on assets there? Now, certainly I won't debate, Jim, that people are moving to the smile states, but in the Midwest, you still have great fundamentals in terms of an educated population. You've got great employers. You've also got great other employers we don't always talk about. For instance, I know being based in, in Columbus, Ohio, Jim, you've got kind of the trifecta, as we would call it, for that city. You've got a major university, the state capital, as well as other major employers. Similar attributes could be found in Minneapolis and St. Paul, for instance, which we're a big investor in. And so I think it's, I think people are often uh, too quick to write off the Midwest as flyover country and don't often dig into the fundamentals. And that's why we've not seen the peaks and valleys that a lot of these smile states have seen. Um, you know, they just had a lot further to fall. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean they're bad places to live or invest, but you got to be really careful. You can overpay. Uh, you know, for instance, I often use the analogy of tech stocks. You can like a company and say, you know, I love Amazon or I love Google, but at some point you can only pay a 2000 uh, price to sales or price to earnings ratio for so long and so many years before there is a reversion of the mean because it just doesn't work anymore. And so that's where the Midwest has got maybe better pricing fundamentals back, but I would still argue a pretty stable employment base. Um, and you know, things are things that things come and go in vogue. And so as the cost of living of the smile states has gone up, you've seen more people either stay put or move back to the Midwest. So uh, call me long Midwest and I'm definitely biased. 
<laughs> no, that, that's a good explanation there. So, you know, obviously right now in the current market, interest rates are an issue because of the, the pace that they went up, right? Inflation is still hanging around. Um, either it's decreased a little bit or it's still going. Uh, insurance rates are going through the roof. So where does a value investor like like Midlock see opportunity um, in this in this un, in these uncertain conditions? Yeah, so you brought up a term that is an industry term, both on Wall Street and real estate, which is value investor. You probably, if you're a listener, have probably heard the term value-added investment. It gets used a lot. And so I always try to say, what does that mean? And so at Midlock, we keep our definition really simple. For value-added investment, it means we're looking for two or more ways to make money. So often people, I would argue, are really speculators, and they're looking for rent growth and price appreciation. That does work when the price is going up, up, and up. Uh, for value investments, though, it's a little bit of an old school mentality. By the way, Warren Buffett is the most famous value investor. He does the same thing. He's looking for simple ways to unlock value. For instance, I'll give you an example. Uh, we just bought a property here August 31st. Um, low leverage, Fannie Mae backed apartment deal. And it was owned by a legacy family. Their kids actually inherited the property. It's kind of my favorite story to buy from. Um, and they weren't charging for utilities. You know, you, I don't know where you've lived. I've always had to pay my own utilities, no matter if it's a home or an apartment. Um, they weren't charging for utilities. It's in a semi-urban area. They didn't charge for parking. And that was before I even mentioned the third way, which was the rent is, you know, 20 to 30% below its all of its competitors because they just kept it full and never pushed the rent. So as a value investor, we're always looking for two to three ways to make money. Interest rates are going to be what they are. And so when we look at our deals, we look at two things. One, what is the interest rate today? And how does that can impact our future cap rates? And one of the most bad behaviors I see amongst real estate operators and investors is, well, interest rates are going to go down. Okay, and that means cap rates are going to go down. I'm saying that sarcastically for people who are listening to this in the podcast. I'm not a believer in that. You know, historically, the U.S. 10-year treasury is at 5%, which is where it is just about at the time of this recording. And so you have to be really careful to say interest rates are going to be where they are today. We know that going in. But how does that also impact our cap rates? And so, you know, it's one function of finding the value and the neat things to say, I can do that and do this. But also, does the investment still work with where interest rates are and where interest rates could be in three, five or seven years? I just would caution everyone, you know, if you're being told interest rates are going to go down. Sure, I think they'll go down some. But I don't necessarily see a world where interest rates come back to three, four percent where they were just two years ago. Yeah, that's good stuff. So you you mentioned some of the the levers you can pull on a value add deal. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think you, you mentioned you know there's low rents or parking. When you're analyzing a deal and you're deciding, hey, we want to make an offer on this deal. What are the things that you're finding that really unlock the value? Those, those multiple, you know, like, you, like you said, you want more than one, right? You want to find yep. multiple levers. So can you talk about some of those, how you find them and then how you capitalize on them? Yeah, and I think that one thing we missed when we talked about Midlock is, you know, at our core, at our principal team for Midlock, we've got people that are former lenders, former developers or current developers even, uh, property managers, investors. And so there's good diversity amongst the Midlock team in our skill sets. Um, and so there's always 
a looking of our experience to say, what have we historically seen and what are things we're not even thinking about? You know, for instance, it wasn't until a few years ago, Jim, that we really leaned in hard to green incentives. You know, for instance, we bought a property in Colorado that we've since sold, bought it, sold it, bought it from a public REIT, by the way. Everyone always thinks it's the mom and pop screwing up, but sometimes it can be a rounding error from a Wall Street firm. And we bought it. And one thing we noticed at the closing table was there was a million and a quarter, 1.25. So a fair amount of money on an energy rebate tied to the roof. It was a $20 million property. So a million and a quarter is a fair amount of money. It's five, 6% of the purchase price. And they just never bothered to fill out the rebate. You know, the government doesn't care who spent the money. They just care who filled out the rebate and who owns the property. So at the closing table, we filled out all the paperwork for the rebate and got paid. So that was an easiest way to make money is just be good at filling out rebate paperwork for energy efficiency. <laughs> but it, it can range. You know, we've got a whole slide in our deck that we say, here are things we look for. Obviously, rent growth is probably the most common one. But, you know, is there excess land? I number of times people don't value, you know, maybe in a retail center, part of their parking lot that could turn into a new Starbucks. Or we own a property in Wisconsin where I'm based, where we've got 16 acres that we're talking to home developers, maybe about building homes on 16 acres next to our apartment building. You know, there's got to be different ways to unlock value more than just rent growth. And no two buildings are the same. And so that's where you lean on your combined experiences, but be open to change. There's going to be new opportunities all the time in the market to make money. And you, you mentioned a rounding error for a Wall Street firm. And and you know, most people, like you said, when they're when you're looking to do ad value and things like that, you're looking for the mom and pop owners, self storage, mobile homes, multifamily. That's what you want. You want to you want to find a mom and pop owner who's owned it for 30 years is making money. They don't need to do anything to continue making money. You buy it for them and you can do all this value add. But you mentioned the rounding error. And I want to dig into that a little bit because, you know, what people maybe don't understand is that often a REIT, they might own a bunch of properties and they, they might have a reason to sell that has nothing to do with that property. So can you talk, and I think this is one of the examples you, you're, you're talking about. Can you just explain that a little bit? Yeah, so good example. We bought a property from a, a public REIT known as Vera REIT. Um, they don't exist anymore. They've since sold themselves, I believe, to O, which is uh, a different, larger public REIT on the U.S. stock market. And they made a cardinal of sins, Jim, that we took advantage of. First off, they only marketed it to a small handful of prop, of uh, buyers. So they didn't do a wide marketing blast. Um, they didn't know about their energy rebates. And they were motivated to sell the property because they were trying to sell properties in a certain region so they could them, themselves sell their whole REIT. And so at times, what I've seen institutional real estate, and keep in mind, I worked on that side at one point in my career is that at times they just deem the real estate unnecessary. And so they just sell it. It doesn't really make sense. You often wonder what their motivation is for. Um, and so sometimes the REIT, do they do things. It could be a non-REIT too. It could be a pension fund. I've seen that too. I bought a great deal in Ohio, where you're based, by the way, from a Canadian pension fund for the same reason. And uh, they just they, they don't pay attention to it. It's not worth their time in their books. They'd rather focus on high rises or, you know, big, big, sexy transactions. They forget about stuff. And so often you can find value from these big groups that are just too big for their own good. Um, for instance, years ago, I bought a property on behalf of MLG in Cincinnati and Columbus, Ohio, was owned by a large Canadian pension fund. And they literally had never flown to the properties they owned. 
and so it was kind of easy pickings, man. I got to tell you, we made money hand over fist on those properties um, just by doing the basics in real estate. So it, whether it's a mom and pop or a large group, look for what they're not doing. And sometimes it's the obvious stuff. Yeah, that's great. I've, I've also heard of, you know, if you're dealing with some of these REITs or, or large, larger buyers, that sometimes they, their investors, they have a deal where you have to, they want their money back after seven years and maybe it's contractual. And so they have to sell at the end of that seven years to regardless of the market or where it is or what it is. And so that's a great way to pick up some deals as well. I would agree with that. Um, so now I want to dive into to, um, kind of how you vet local sponsor operators that you partner with, right? So you evaluate the investment opportunities and you have to vet the, the operators you're working with to make sure that you're working with quality operators. So how do you mostly vet the operator? What are you doing to make sure that you're working with quality people and that they know what they're doing? Yeah, that's a great question. So not only are we doing a full due diligence set on the building, um, and so it's got to qualify both from a financial standpoint and get through all due diligence. The operators also got to get through operator due diligence. And so it's more than just saying, hey, I work in this industry. Trust me, I'm really good. Um, things we get access to that maybe I think a small investor cannot is we get access to what's known as a real estate or REO schedule, which is what are all the assets they own? You know, we have to, we make them sign it and verify how the operations are going. We dig into how other buildings and portfolio. We try to figure out where their problems are and where their headaches are. It's okay for people to have problems. The question is how you are dealing with them and how honest you are with your investors about what the problems you are and what the lessons you've learned. Um, and so we dig in not only to past performance, but also current holdings. And that's before we even touch the accounting and legal side of making and verifying that they are who they say they are. Um, we take fraud here super seriously. You know, I think one big advantage um, of working with a group like Midlock is we've got a whole team of, of lawyers and accountants of looking into these things because there are some unscrupulous people in this world in real estate and they're looking to take advantage of investors. And we got to be really careful to look out for those people. Um, so um, you name it, we do it. We dig into it. It's, sometimes it's uncomfortable to ask for it, especially when you're asking for people's personal financials. Um, but you have to do that to make sure that you're in bed with the right people and also verifying how their operations work. The operations part, you know, obviously you got to visit other properties they operate, you got to visit their, there's an old school due diligence thing that I still make my team do, which is you got to visit the home office of whoever you're partnering with. Um, it seems like a small thing, but you got to just stop by and see them. Um, so we talk a lot about track record, like when you're investing with an operator, you want to make sure they have a good track record. Well, I know from experience, even someone who doesn't know what they're doing, which I didn't know what I was doing when I invested in a bunch of multifamily myself, um, I made money on them because the market just kept mm -hmm. going up and up and up. So how much do you value? And aside, aside from that, how much should an LP value experience and track record? Because that was always one of the major things. But Everyone has a good track record now. And some of our favorite operators who are talking about 30% plus returns on, you know, 20 to 30 properties they did over the last few years are having trouble now. So how mm -hmm. does the uh, track record argument work now or does it? Yeah, I'm glad you asked this. It, 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 it's a piece, right? It's got to matter to a degree. You want to know they made money. Um, my biggest concern, Jim, is everyone made money. 
And so, and sometimes people made money taking, I would call excessive bad behavior and risk, which was, you know, for instance, I'm not a fan of bridge loans. I actually refer to them in the office as hedge fund loans. Not a big fan of them. Um, it's the quickest way to lose all your money um, in real estate. You got to be really careful. And so a lot of people, they took excessive debt, you know, when times were easy and now they're finding out those loans got to get paid back and your lender may not be your friend. You know, they might be looking to take back that property and wipe out all your equity. But when times are good, sure, it makes their IRR and their equity multiple look super high and stuff. And so you want to find out how they act when things get squirrely. Um, you know, I often told me, uh, I had a mentor tell me one time, it's you never know how someone is until there is a bad time, you know, whether it be COVID, 2008, you know, right now, I would argue we're going through a pretty slow time in real estate which is how do they act when things aren't good? What are they telling? Are they communicating? Are they providing financials? Are they working through their problem? Like I said, people are going to make mistakes. There's going to be things that are outside of their control. It doesn't make them bad investors, bad operators. The question is what they do to react from that. Um, and so that's what we focus on. And um, for instance, one of the best operators I work with, it doesn't raise outside capital, by the way, um, long storied history, but he had a bankruptcy during 2008. That doesn't mean, a lot of lenders, by the way, they look at that as a red flag. Now, what happened was during 2008, a lender put him into foreclosure wrongfully. Um, and so to defend his reputation, he put, you know, he put himself into bankruptcy to defend it and did win. He's a very ethical person. He's very good. But during 2008, weird things were happening that didn't make logical sense. So like I said, you got to dig into more than just the track record and you got to ask them, where were you during these crises and what did you learn? Um, and so uh, one last thing, Jim, I know I'm over the time on this question. It's it's a famous thing. You can find it on the internet. If not, I can send it to people. You know, Trammell Crow in the 1980s, when the, there was a big crash in the savings and loan crisis, they pulled all of their investment managers, VPs and up in, and everyone wrote down handwritten lessons of what they learned. Um, it's scary how accurate those things are today. Um, and sometimes as humans and investors, we don't learn from what our predecessors already taught us. So happy to pass it along. Otherwise, go Google on the internet. It's a great quick read. Yeah, that, that's great. I definitely will check that out. And that reminds me, it's kind of like uh, the book we were talking about that Steve Sue wrote, the, um, you know, the, the rookie, rookie errors and how to avoid yeah. them as, as a left fielder, right? Because what Steve did is he took all the, you know, 14 years he's been doing this and he, he made 20 errors that he wanted to talk about. And so he shows the errors, but he shows what did he learn from those. And so I think that really is the best way to learn. You know, you don't learn as much from your successes as you do from your failures. And I think your example there and Steve's book both um, both kind of point to that. Um, By the way, Steve's book's very good. I told Steve at the conference that after I read it, um, I wanted to buy a copy. I think it cost $1 on Amazon uh, for my whole staff because I was that impressed with what he wrote down. Oh, that that's great to hear. It, it is a fantastic book. Uh, again, I'm I'm biased. I'm always plugging that book, but it's it's such a good read for for a new person and and for an experienced person because there's just so much stuff in there. So, um, appre appreciate that feedback for Steve for sure. Um, so the last question I always ask is, what is a great podcast that you that you listen to? And you can give me a couple if you want. 
Yeah, I'm going to give you two. I'm going to give you, um, I'll give you a real estate one and then another one. So the very first podcast, kind of as the industry was getting going that I listened to, is uh, every, I recommend the Friday edition is Motley Fool Money. Uh, it is a Wall Street or uh, like a stock-based podcast. I think it's a great listen to. There's great guests. Um, they do it daily now. I usually just listen to the weekly one on Fridays. Um, but if you're looking for a real estate centric one, there's a great one hosted by an industry group called Walker Dunlop. It's known as the Walker webcast. It's both a podcast and on YouTube. We actually had the pleasure. I'm a Marquette alumni. Willie Walker, who's the host, actually came and spoke to Marquette University on his lessons and what he's learned and going through his own crises. But he gives great advice and has great guests. Some are real estate oriented and some are not. You know, for instance, he had the former CEO of IBM on on his podcast just a few weeks ago. So uh, both are great. Um, and hopefully you guys take away as much from those as I do. Awesome. Thank you for those recommendations. And then if listeners want to get in touch with you or learn more about Midlock, uh, what's the best way to do that? I have a very easy email, andy at midlock.com. I'll spell that for you. It's A-N-D-Y at Midlock, which is M-I-D-L-O-C-H. It's like the Loch Ness Monster. So midlock.com. Give us a shout. Awesome. I'll put that in the show notes as well. But Andy, thank you. This is fantastic. We appreciate you being on the show. Thank you for having me, Jim. It was great to be here. Visor provides investors with a secure platform that displays a comprehensive view of all of their holdings on a single holistic dashboard. From real estate syndications to private equity, crypto to traditional investments with AI-driven, unbiased, honest insights to maximize return, Visor is your one place to rule them all. Automating performance tracking, projecting future cash flow, analyzing all your financial documents and much more in one powerful solution, making it easy to follow the money. Sign up for a free 30-day trial now at Pfizer.co. I had fun talking to Andy. Very unique uh, way that they do this with the JV, the co-GP, and or the Pref Equity. It's just a different way of of doing business where they they are an operator, but they're kind of hooking into other operators and, and making them better and improving them. So it's different than just being a capital raiser, right? Because yeah, they're raising capital. They're, they're providing most of the capital for these deals, but they are an active partner in, ma in managing the asset and helping the, um, the other operators. So I think that's just a very interesting way to go about things. And here's another guy, you know, who started at the bottom. He called himself a real estate runner. He was doing all the grunt work for a real estate company. And you slow, that's how you learn, right? That's how you get a breadth of knowledge. You start at the bottom, you work way up, you do every job in the business, and all of a sudden you're running the show. So I really like talking to people who have all that experience because they understand what everyone's job is in the company, and that gives them a better perspective. And you know how they partner with operators, I think, is, is super interesting, as I mentioned. But they they find this, their strengths that they can pass on in, in other ways to make money. So it's really just an additive to the operator. And, you know, I like what he talked about, you know, the LP that what they get out of this, the way the deal is structured is you get, or if you invest in the fund, I guess, you get a diversified portfolio, which is nice. You get that in other funds, but here you get asset, different assets, different markets and things like that. And then you get the best terms, right? That's some of what we do at left field when we're trying to reach a certain level of community investment so we can get better terms on a deal. You can do that just by going through this fund because they are such a large, they, they bring most of the capital. So they're going to get the best terms from the operator. So that's, that's really 
interesting way to um, to just get better better results. And then he talked about re- reasons to invest in the Midwest, or as he calls it, the mid-best. Um, you know, they might not have the growth that's the sunshine or the smile states, I guess we call them, um, the smile states have. But what a lot of these cities have, like Columbus, like Milwaukee, like Chicago, they have a large employer base, universities, and maybe even capital cities. So if you look at Columbus, the two largest employers in the state of Ohio are Ohio State University and the state of Ohio. So that makes Columbus potentially, even though it might not have the growth that some of these other states have, it's an attractive place to invest, uh, perhaps. And then as far as the value add, they're always looking for new ways to unlock value. Now, that could be just the standard ways of adding a dog park or, or um, you know, some amenities or, um, you know, renovating apartments or looking for low rents, things like that. But it's also things like finding an asset that a REIT has to sell for a reason that has nothing to do with the property or finding a, an asset that's selling that has that rebate that he talked about that all they had to do was file up the paperwork and, and boom, you get a million bucks. So that's the kind of company I like dealing with who are always digging in and looking for the extra edge because that extra edge, especially when you're using a loan and have some leverage, that just really amps the return. So I um, really enjoyed talking to Andy. We'll certainly visit with him again. Um, that's all we have for this time. We'll catch you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in the left field with us today. If you are interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestor.com and click the subscribe button to join our community. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to the show on your podcast player so you don't miss an episode. If you really enjoyed the show, a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts would be appreciated. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.